Janice, president of the Iowa Prairie Network, and this is the Prairie Farm Podcast. Something I have noticed as, uh, I I don't know how to describe besides a child of Prairie, right? My parents are all about Prairie. Their livelihood has been about Prairie. Um, Is Is that a spinoff of Children of the Corn? Yeah, I'm like the child of the prairie. <laughs> Similarly horrifying. Creepy, <laughs> creepy. <laughs> and just as life-changing. Uh, as not. Uh, but something I've noticed is that everyone that's been in prairie, not everyone, most of the people that have been in prairie have been my dad's age. And my dad's age has been growing every year. Crazy how that works. Uh, but I did start to wonder in college, I was like, what happens when people like him... People like the legendary John Judson or um, Dan Allen or John Ozenbaugh, people who have really just brought Prairie to Iowa. What happens when they are no longer working? Now, honestly, they'll probably all be 95 before they're not working anymore. <laughs> but, but that day will come. And what happens then? Uh, and I remember starting to work for my dad at Hoxie Native Seeds and, and at first being like, think I'm alone. I think I am the single person under 45 working in Prairie. I think this is it. I am just destined to work with 65-year-old farmers. And granted, they are awesome. They bring a lot of wisdom and experience, but uh, sometimes it feels a little lonely. And then I was saved by, how old are you, Kent? 41? 46? Take it easy. 33. 33. Kent came swinging in at 33, uh, and my job got a lot more enjoyable, even more enjoyable than it was. But while we were working on this podcast together- Thank you, I, Nick. Yeah, yeah. It's a nice compliment. Well, yeah. No, I really like working with you, Kent. Together, we can be children of the prairie. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I can see it now. Theaters 2025, <laughs> the horrifying children of the prairie, and it's just a slow shot of us working- hoeing weeds and being like, this could be you one day. Take care of your prairie. Um, But while we were working on this podcast, I came, I was looking through an organization that has a huge influence on the prairie in Iowa. And I came across their president while I was on their website. And I thought that person does not look 46 years old or, you know, (laughs) the, the young age of 70. Uh, uh, and, and ended up reaching out to her for a podcast, and she agreed. And um, we have had such a good time getting to know you, everyone. We have Tabitha Panis with us today. Thanks so much for joining us. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I have noticed similar things and had conversations with folks in this field about the very thing that you talked about, um, which is that a lot of people who have a lot of knowledge and skill about prairie are getting older. I think that that happens in every field, wherever Mm. you are, whether you're a doctor or a lawyer or whatever your field of work is. Um, And I think that a lot of these prairie experts have gotten that way. They're so influential and they've um, gained all that knowledge through just the years of service. I mean, Mm. studying prairie ecosystems is an extremely intricate and complex thing and there's so much knowledge um being you know kind of a land manager myself it's so hard to give people 
good advice because mm. every situation is different. Things are constantly changing. Um, the prairie is just so dynamic. So I think yeah. those years of being able to see um, the results of your actions uh, just give them a lot of knowledge. And the, the other problem I think that I see is um, folks, our parents or maybe grandparents age used to volunteer quite a bit more. And people get so busy these days with yeah. um, their own lives. And that's just kind of a product of our society is we're so busy. We don't have people who volunteer right. quite as much anymore. Mm. And a lot of this stuff gets done. Um, some of the most important things get done through uh, volunteer. So yeah. um, Kent and I have talked about when you're more connected to the land, you care more about it. Mm-hmm. But what we've never attached that to is the volunteer yeah. work and the volunteer mm-hmm. time and energy and effort that goes towards that. I've never thought about that. Yeah. It's, a, it's a good point too, because you're never going to be able to buy enough hours. You know what I mean? You're never going to be able to, in other words, come up with enough dollars to employ all these people to get the work done that needs to be done. And so volunteering is yeah. a critical part of that. And Nick, I don't know if you remember when we went up to Minnesota and talked to uh, Bob and uh, Howard from Pheasants Forever. Mm-hmm. They... <laughs> They talked about the importance of, of um, Nick. You got to cut this. I'm thinking of Ron Howard. <laughs> so, can I just say it? Come on, no, we can't you cut it. You cut it. You cut it. Okay, you we'll cut, cut it. it just for time of this, like Kent <laughs> <laughs> called <laughs> Howard Vincent Ron Howard to his face. <laughs> it's a. It's a. It's a two-name thing, and I think of the actor and the movie director, Ron Howard. Oh, gosh. That's too funny. All right. <clears throat> Nick, you have to cut this. <laughs> but I'm gonna, to be fair, I promised Laura Walter I'd cut out a bunch of hers, and, and we just didn't. You know, I'm going to use the, <laughs> the Peyton method. <laughs> yeah, just when it, so on our YouTube channel, if one of my friends we work with, Peyton, if he says something that he's like, I don't want that on air, he'll just add the word like... <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, like something like that, just like right at the end of the sentence so yeah. that he knows I can't use it. Like, great, oh, thank you. Oh, that's funny. <clears throat> All this wonderful, useless recording. All right. Sorry, Nick. I gotta I'm down myself. to chat all day, so I don't care. <laughs> all right, I gotta, right, I gotta well, gather myself. All right, ready? Do we want, let's, let's skip to the intro. Let's skip to the intro. I organized a small game, very small, very short game, and I'm pitting you guys against each other. Uh, mostly because I'm hosting right now and I get to pick what's happening. So you have that power. Yes. Yes. All right. It's going to be multiple choice. There's three questions. We're going to go from level one to level three. Oh no. All right. And the winner gets Kent's Hoxie hat. So if you win, you get to keep it. If you lose, you got to give it up. Sorry, C. bro. Option C. <laughs> I've heard that's a common one. I'm going to go with that from the start. <laughs> right. <For> question one. <laughs> Looks like you got to give up your. <laughs> it's got sweat stains all right. on it. All right. So, so it's, a, it's all about prairie. And uh, the first question, level one. What switchgrass comes from Cave and Rock, Illinois? You've got Canlow switchgrass, Iowa ecotype switchgrass, or Cave and Rock, Illinois switchgrass? I'm going to go with uh, option three there. <laughs> That nod looked confirming. I feel as if I should also go with option three, but I'm kind wow. of leaning to maybe I'll go with three. All right. Yeah. No, that was right. <laughs> I would have been really sad if anyone on this podcast didn't get that right. All right. <laughs> you know, that sounds like it's from Iowa. I don't know. Um, anyway. Okay. Okay. You guys did great. Level two. How long do most scientists believe Prairie has been in the Midwest? 
Mm. before the Indian Empire, before the Mesopotamian civilization, or before the Egyptian Empire, or all of the above. Okay, this is tricky because you're relating it to empires. Mm-hmm. So no, no level years two on, guys. No years level on those two. Empires. <laughs> I actually, I actually heard recently before I answer this question, and I don't even know what one I'm going to choose yet. <laughs> Which but, empire is the oldest? <laughs> I want to keep my hat. <laughs> but uh, I heard recently on a I, so being out in the field for you know. What do you think, Nick? Probably on average, at least nine hours a day. Most days right now for the summers. Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. So I get to listen to audiobooks a lot. And I just uh, got through the book 1491. Great book for anyone out there that's that's into either reading or got time to listen or or whatever. But the author, through his research, found that uh, prairies, the prairie ecosystem in – the middle part of America, really, and, and out, of course, spreading out into the Great Plains a little bit, too, um, probably wasn't as vast as what settlers found when they started, you know, moving west across uh, North America uh, because Native Americans expanded that, that savanna, hmm. that, that grassland uh, ecosystem through their... Um, Burning so that was regimen. more conducive for their lifestyle than like forestation. Right, right. Fort? It, it it created Forestry. it created the habitat necessary for a lot of their game species. So that was the other part of it. Was you know when we look back, there's a great book written about the wildlife pre settlement here in Iowa. In fact, uh, we're hoping to get the author of that book, who I believe is up at Iowa State. Um, on the podcast at some point uh the the title of this book again if you're a reader a country so full of game and uh so that that goes through the history of all the main wildlife species obviously can't cover all of them uh, really the most well known and based on what i was hearing in 1491 is that even the that number of species which was huge i mean just unbelievably that when you look at the estimates uh, i believe the high end estimates for number of american bison uh not in in just iowa but in north america at that time were around 60 million is like the high end the more conservative end i think is about half of that uh 40 30 to 40 million um but that that is believed to be inflated by this burning uh, these the, really what we call now prescribed burning that Native Americans were doing, indigenous people were doing, um, you know, for thousands of years, and it expanded the prairie. And so, um, going back to your question, though, I'm going to guess prairie to predate when we look at, you know, uh, the end of the last ice age. Um, that probably puts us in line with. Oh boy. I'm going to say Egypt. Ethiopia? (laughs) Ethiopia wasn't an option. Yeah, that's what what I thought I heard. Egypt. I said Egypt. 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 Yeah, the Egyptian (laughs) Empire, as you said. The Egyptian Empire. (laughs) Think about yourself. You've got Egyptian, Mesopotamian, and Indian. Egyptian. Indian, of course, being South Asia, not Native American. 
Okay, and this is just before their civilizations? Mm-hmm. Okay, so this is a tricky question for me because I'm not a historian on ancient civilizations. I'm not confident in my dates. If you, if you get dates. out of the prairie <laughs> realm, I quickly, my knowledge quickly <laughs> dives into knowing nothing. So, um, But just to kind of hit on what you were talking about, Kent, it's super interesting. People... So, like, the bigger picture, I think, of what you're talking about is that people are part of the ecosystem. Mm, yeah. And I think people think so often, I mean, we're very different. We are talking into microphones on a podcast. We drive our, <laughs> you know, mechanical cars to work. So, we, we do have a lot of differences. In, right. Um, but we are part of the ecosystem and have been affecting mm-hmm. it for thousands of years. Yeah. Um, Native Americans used fire to green up pastures so that those bison mm-hmm. could come graze. So it was a hunting tactic to draw in game. Um, it was also a warfare tactic. Um, mm-hmm. They would send, you know, head fire towards enemies. Um, it also served as protecting yourself because if you were to burn an area out around your tribe or your civilization, um, you can't be burned over. You know? Yeah, if, you create if you've your ever, back burn to yeah, protect you. If you've ever, you know, been um, fighting wildfires mm-hmm. or doing prescribed burns, they always say the safest place is in the black where, yeah, you know, it's already burned. And I think a lot of people forget that. And I always try to point that out when you're on a fire because it's kind of counterintuitive. But right. once the fire passes through and there's no more fuels in that area, it's going to be a safe place for them to be. And so, yeah, um, I have not read the book that you're talking about but i i mean that definitely when do you all right well first i'll ask the question do you think we're net positive or net negative on the ecosystem um currently yeah the past yeah just right now as people live. wait what do you mean by net positive net negative i hate to be a negative nancy but i'm gonna go with negative yeah i feel like you're saying like are we still you're saying are we still losing prairie at this point no just in general as a human species i feel like most people agree we are worse for the earth oh we we, as in like how are humans affecting gotcha gotcha it just kind of depends negative no doubt too i guess i mean if you're considering all species we're probably a huge net positive to ourselves i mean we have modern medicine we have raccoons yeah yeah raccoons deer coyotes they've all done well under us no kidding there was a study done that um wildlife that live in cities have all the same common diseases that we have diabetes heart disease things Hmm. like that because they're eating fascinating our excess (laughs) so they're doing well um cats and dogs species who have been developed to live with us are doing awesome so it's have they been developed or have they been uh what do they call that devolved (laughs) <laughs> yeah yeah maybe i don't know no, I, I, i'm not a, an expert it's, I'm not it's an interesting question that. for sure and and even you know when i was still teaching there when you ask certain questions on like tests that are open-ended questions you get the same for the kids that didn't study you get the same open-ended answers all the time and one of those would be like Okay, could you uh, identify an invasive species that we talked about when we were discussing, you know, uh, this type of ecosystem? Humans would always be the common answer. (laughs) Or, you know, like what would happen if, you know, the cell doesn't get uh, this need within it dies? You know, like, <laughs> okay, wow, yes, brilliant. but, but to be so, honest, that's about, that's about how much they'll need once they graduate. From, you know, you get right, school, yeah. But, well, anyway, but, uh, the, that led me to, when do you think we turn to a net negative? Right. Cause I feel like humans haven't always been a net negative on the environment. And 
yeah you start to get pretty philosophical there nick um yeah it's, it's hard it's hard to figure <clears throat> out what a what negative is mm-hmm. i don't know if like major factories because major factories were a huge step in efficiency and efficiency is always at a cost of something saves time costs something else I don't know. yeah i mean even pre-industrial revolution you know uh maybe examples of market you know commercial hunting and fishing was pretty hard commercial logging you know mm-hmm. um uh, look at like the history of some of our new england states so the earliest settled states in north america uh new hampshire for one i know of well because that's where my uh, in-laws live but New Hampshire now is one of our most forested states. 90% of the surface area of New Hampshire is forested. At one point, I believe it was reversed. 10% was forested uh, because of when, you know, humans started to, uh, Europeans started to settle, I should say. Europeans started to settle in uh, that part of the country. They just started to clear cut everything, try and bring agriculture to a state that is not meant for agriculture, right? And it didn't take long, you know, maybe a hundred years or so. And people are like, you know what? West <laughs> sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> Boys ever hear of the Oregon Trail? <laughs> Which is interesting in of itself because, you know, Oregon is basically, you know, West Coast, New Hampshire. I just but, imagined some kid be like mad at his dad because for three generations they've been trying to grow wheat it's not growing up there and he's like you'd find gold in california before you'd find it grow anything here that's a great idea right but but i mean you know even then so you're talking a long long time ago we were having a major effect on the ecosystem then and even even for the what we were just talking about with uh you know with indigenous people who were living here for thousands of years before Europeans started to settle. They were affecting the ecosystems. Now, more is sometimes better, but not always better. You know, it, yeah. the, having more of different different species as a result of those actions. You know that who, who knows? Maybe you would go back then, and if you were living at that time, you would maybe see some some effects. So, I think humans just always have had an effect, and that's what makes us so unique. Is is um we're able to do that in such greater amount i don't want to say more so than any other species um well i don't but, know if there's any species but, comparable yeah i mean and, and maybe you could say that but ecology. certainly more than the average species look we still haven't gotten to number three we still haven't gotten the answer for oh, number, number two <laughs> i don't even think tabitha was able to answer yet. yet you cut her oh. off i've been i've been putting it off because i'm <laughs> she's uh, been on her phone over here Mesopotamian. <laughs> <laughs> wait a minute <laughs> <laughs> no i haven't been um well so prairie in iowa has been around for at least twelve thousand years that was kind of the last period of glaciation down in the des moines lobe of iowa um but i mean there have been periods of glaciation in iowa 300,000 years ago when it created the Southern Iowa Drift Plain. So in relation to your civilizations, I don't know, but the answer is at least 12,000 to I'll I'll repeat them for you real quick. You've got India, Mesopotamian, (laughs) Egyptian, or all of the above. Oh, all of the above. I'm going to go with that. Yeah, no, it's before all of the above. Sorry, Ken. I think you guys just started freaking out about the different empires and not knowing that you like did it here that I said all of the above right away. See, that was just the level Oh, two. you said all of the above first? Yeah. 
Well, then it should be all of the below. No, no, no. I said all of the above the first time I read. You know what? That's going to be hard for anyone who can't see this. <laughs> just all right. Level three, right? That was just a level two. I got a level tied three. under my hat. What two species are the two most prevalent species in prairie? Hmm. Are today and were. That's a really good question. Didn't you? Did, were there multiple choice? No multiple no. choices? Level three, baby. I got to go with big blue stem as one of them. Okay. You're thinking any species, plants, animals. Uh, mm. Oh, I'm so sorry. Plant. What plant species? Okay. Yeah. <sighs> big blue is a good guess. Um, What's running through your head right now, Kent? Definitely a grass. I, I got to say it's got to be a grass. Because even, you know, like some of the real small forbs, like a partridge pea or something like yeah. that. Or like black eyes. They're just season. not going to, they're not going to number, number the grass. Yeah, they can't, they can't beat those That's roots. really tough though, because if you're talking about prairies of today or just historically in prairies Historically. All the time? Well, I, from what I researched, which was quickly and mm-hmm. via Google, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> they are the same. The two most prevalent are the oh, same. Oh, okay. Yep. Interesting. Yeah, because it kind of just depends. I, I get where you're coming from with an ice set of grass, too. Definitely going to be a grass species. I've seen some remnant prairies that are solid forbs. Really? Flowers. Yeah. That's that, pretty cool. Not hardly That's a cool. grass in there. So, but how often have you seen this? Um, every single time. Every single time. <laughs> Which is why so I'm why changing my answer. Blue step. <laughs> <laughs> Um, no, I've seen a couple examples and, um, I think it just depends on the history of the prairie. Like if it's been grazed and it's been grazed hard when Mm. the warm season grasses are growing, you're going to see other things express itself. Mm -hmm. Um, this one that I'm thinking of in particular is King Cemetery north of Vail, Iowa. Um, and it has had frequent fire and so maybe that's kind of been done at times that push back the grasses but it's super interesting um glenn pollock a good friend of mine who is a founding member of the iowa prairie network um helps manage this prairie and he we kind of postulize that it, it's high up on the landscape um and that would be a good place for you know a cemetery mm-hmm. um when you have a nice pretty view and then it's got so many flowers next to it that this cemetery is very old i mean it was started in like maybe 1850s to later 1800s. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, the settlers at the time picked that spot because it had so many beautiful flowers next to it because, mm, you know, back point, in the day, yeah. you couldn't just go to Walmart and buy your plastic flowers to stick on right. a family member's grave. You know, you needed to pick your own flowers to uh, commemorate family members. And so mm-hmm. that's kind of what we postulize is that prairie just has a lot of flowers for maybe some of those reasons. But so that's the one, the main one I'm thinking of. There are several others that are pretty forb dominated. So I guess I'm not. Do you guys want to hint since, since no, collectively I, I sh- you're struggling? I, sh- I should, I should guess here first. Just I gave to be the fair. easy one. I feel like big blue stem is an easy guess. Um, I'm going to say, <laughs> I believe in you. I know that switch is really like, it really just, can dominate like it can take over um but it also can can also be be uh you know kind of tough to get going to establish in an area for a first few years that it was there so something else could come up and and over dominate before it could i'm gonna go with though 
I think I'm gonna you're go. Right. I'm gonna go with. I'm gonna go with uh, Indian grass. Justin, there's two. You gotta guess two. Oh, you gotta I guess two. One. We each guessed one. I thought we're we doing this one together. We're not against. Okay, okay. so you're if I can guess two, I'm other. gonna go. I'm gonna go. Yeah. <laughs> she doesn't want this hat. It's got like a sweat ring on it and stuff. You know? Wait, <laughs> who's? What's the score so far? You're uh, up one. I am. Wait. Oh yeah, because we tied one. on the first you one. You guessed all the above, and he guessed Egypt. Okay. So it would yeah. which wasn't an me option to but... be on the same team as you, but not you. <laughs> <laughs> oh. so. so I'm gonna go with I'm gonna go with Indian and switch. What are your two then? Um, I said big blue, and I'm gonna just be basic and go with little blue as well. Man, the answer is big blue and little blue. No! Oh. Wow, I cannot believe you got that. That's incredible. Oh, yeah, nice yeah. work. Yeah, I had to pretend like I didn't know, but I really knew the whole time. Yeah. No. <laughs> just so I wouldn't look so stupid. I'm just kidding. I did not know at all. Those were just a couple guesses. But those are kind of the most common things people... I mean, if you're going to list prairie species, people talk about big blue and little blue. You know what's interesting about that? And this is the reason why I didn't, I, I, I didn't guess big blue is because um, on our farm, we've actually had uh, – now, big big blue, I will say this. Big Blue does a good job of jumping into other fields and starts to establish itself. I just spent the morning digging up volunteer Big Blue in our and SOG. it's not easy to dig up, guys. Those roots are deep. Yeah, it takes, it takes, it takes a, a, a lot of effort. But um, we've kind of had some struggles. In fact, that was uh, something that – Carol and, and Nick worked on earlier this spring while I was still teaching school, um, kind of shocking the ground a little bit to, to stimulate those root systems to be laying on more uh, growth. And um, we've had some trouble with that. Um, and, and then just from, like I said, you know, spending time getting stuff from volunteering out of fields. Um, I've seen a lot of big blue. I've seen a lot of switch volunteering. I've seen very little little blue. So that that's uh that actually is kind of surprising to me that little blue is, well, is little blue so did, common. It just doesn't die. It won't mm-hmm. go away. And it yeah. can go from um it can go from I believe extremely wet to uh, dry. It's very diverse yeah. what it can handle. But That's not as diverse as I think Cytotsgrama. I was surprised Cytotsgrama wasn't. That was uh, that was high on my high on my guest list too because like okay, going back to what I see, you know, yeah. when I'm out working in the field, S- the SOG is very thick. Although yeah. we do have saying that we do have a new plant uh, or a new field uh, this year of SOG that has had a lot of trouble keeping the foxtail at bay. And uh, so, you know, maybe getting started, maybe that's why. Yeah, yeah. But once it's going, I mean, it is thick. Like, that's a thick field. Yeah. And little blue, I mean, it's got the really fluffy seed, so I think it carries mm-hmm. better than some of the grasses. But yeah, that's I, a good point. I know that the four quote-unquote horsemen of prairie is big blue, little blue, Indian, and switchgrass. But in um, – the sales world of prairie, the big five are all four of those plus Cytotsgrama. Mm-hmm. So Cytotsgrama, except for this past year, because there was like 30% of the Cytotes that there normally were that mm-hmm. were harvested. Um, normally, you know, it's right up there getting maybe 
eight to ten percent of a mix. You know what else seemed like it could have been a good guess there too would have been uh, buffalo grass. Not because you see a ton oh, of yeah. buffalo grass, but buffalo grass is really good at going into a new spot. Like mm-hmm. once it finds an opening, it just you know it kind of creeps in there and and takes over. And then once it's on the ground, you want us to talk about a clean field. Go look at a buffalo grass field. Yeah. That stuff mm-hmm. blankets the ground and it yeah. keeps those. I mean, you might see some common uh, milkweed growing up in there, but other than that, very few uh you know quote-unquote weeds that are invading those fields and something i really like about buffalo grass fields is that since it, buffalo grass is so short when we quote-unquote spray the buffalo grass we just have like a big paint roller like it's a tractor implement that has just a little bit of chemical on it mm. and you roll it over so you're not getting extra residue sprayed everywhere it's not going all over the ground or anything. yeah it doesn't even touch the buffalo grass right nope, it's it, just it just hits everything that's yeah. sticking up above it just so it literally only makes contact with the weeds and that's it you yeah. don't have to yeah. you don't have to mass spray and i really like that about buffalo grass but man wow. it's, it's nice to have like around ponds so you can go fishing never have to mow yeah guys buffalo grass is the thing to have very expensive yeah yeah if like you hate bucks an if you hate, plant, hate mowing your yard you'll make that bu- that money back within a couple of years of not having to mow <laughs> yeah no that that's oh yeah within one year if you're yeah. having a riding mower every year for sure Mm-hmm. My grandparents lived um, out in western Nebraska, like almost Colorado, north of Sydney wow. area. And so it's so dry out there. The and they actually use buffalo grass for a lot of their lawns um, out there. That's cool. And so that would have been a great guess had I been thinking of prairies outside of Iowa. I get so Zoom focused to where mm-hmm. I'm at. And I just think about <clears> the prairies <throat> that I'm on that, um, you know, I travel out west and I'm like, wow, what's this? What's this? You know, it's so so different when you travel relatively not very far so and they get like a lot of well that's probably further west but how much sagebrush do they have out there on um a decent amount you get just a touch more west of where they're at and it starts to get really rocky um they live super close to like chimney rock you know it's on the Alaska license plate and so they're a hair to the east where it's still relatively flat they're not any they don't have much more moisture they're still really dry but it makes it so conducive for agriculture you don't see a lot of those wild areas where they're at you go five eight miles west and the landscape just really changes dramatically you'll see a lot of sagebrush um are they up near uh, gordon nebraska that name sounds so familiar it's somewhere up in there yeah. I, I went i stayed at a hotel Maybe I should say a motel. I don't remember. Uh, a place in Gordon, Nebraska. It was awesome. It had this awesome name. It was called the Jeffco Inn. And it, so shout out to the Jeffco Inn of Gordon, Nebraska. Super, super nice little place. Um, you know, that was back in the days. So this is when I was like growing up. Internet wasn't, you know, like it was for sure people were using it, but it wasn't. You know, like it is now, or oh, I'll just Google that real quick. You know, it was so you didn't know what you were really getting into. You just knew that there was one place to stay in this little tiny town in mm-hmm. in northwest Nebraska, and uh, Gordon was a cool little town. That's awesome. But I, it is like you're describing too. You know, yeah. you're just on the frontier of all this new ecotype. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure my dad would have a lot more to say about Gordon, Nebraska, since he grew up all the way in there, like went to school in Shadron, which is way up north. But um, he would probably have, you'd probably know exactly where you're talking about. <laughs> what would you do if we just like, we're like, and Mr. Panis, he just like came on out and surprised you. Oh on the my podcast. gosh, I'd be so excited. That would be so awesome. He is the best and he is funny. So 
Um, Let's get that guy on the podcast. Yeah. Especially if he knows yeah. the Jeff Cohen. Yeah. Well, <laughs> not a sponsor. Is that your requirement? <laughs> we have a very similar voice, and I feel like we say some of the same things. You'd definitely be able to tell. I catch myself saying things my dad says all the time. So. <laughs> no greater compliment to a dad yeah. out there. <laughs> well, speaking of your dad, we should probably direct the conversation back to you. I, I just found it so interesting. Someone so young. You graduated high school maybe a little bit before me, 2014, 2013, something um, like that. 2012. 2012. And you are the president of IPN, Iowa mm-hmm. Prairie Network. And that's not a small deal. And there are lots of really awesome, um, intelligent, knowledgeable, experienced people on the IPN. I think that just speaks very highly of where you're at. But how did you get there? One, why do you care at all about mm-hmm. Prairie? And and two, how did your journey lead you to the IPN? Yeah, that's um, a really good question. So we also have a lot of amazing young folks on our board too. I'm definitely not the only one. And, and um, people are out there. We kind of talked a little bit earlier about how a lot of the Prairie knowledge and folks who are really into Prairie are getting older. I think um, there's a lot of younger people kind of stepping into those roles, which is good. Um, there definitely is a gap though, and it's something uh, we worry about. But as far as how did I get to care about Prairie, that's a great question. I really can't answer that. Um, I So when I went to college, I think I was like a lot of folks where I want to be outside. What do you want to do? People always tell you when you're younger, find something that makes you happy and you'll never work a day in your life. Um, I think that's terrible advice. I don't think you should tell kids to find something that makes them happy because at that time, I just wanted to watch uh, the dumb TV shows after school or play volleyball. And so I'm not a very good volleyball player. Nobody's going to pay you to watch TV. Um, <laughs> that was my high school, <laughs> you know, nice. kind of what what do you what makes you happy? What do you like to do? Those sorts of things. Um, I think younger folks should be told to... Um, find a problem that you want to solve in the world. Hmm. Because if you find a problem that you want to solve and you feel like you're solving it every day, that gives you a deeper sense of fulfillment than That's those a great point. That is things a that make you happy. Point. I still like to play sand volleyball and it's fun. But, um, you know, I, I go to work every day and sometimes I look at a computer and that's not fun um, to always be looking at a screen or feel like you have deadlines to meet. It, it can create stress. But uh, at the end of the day, it is a ton of fun because I look back and feel like there is an impact there. Um, so basically, I went to college just thinking that I wanted to do something where I worked outside um, because I enjoy being outside. I didn't want to be um, in an office all the time or stuck behind the computer. And so I um, got a degree in environmental science. And um, after college, where did you go? Um, I went to the University of Nebraska Omaha. Ah, uh, I feel like mm-hmm. everyone who gets environmental science degree goes to Iowa State. Really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not I went to the University of Nebraska Omaha. Um, after school, I was an inter er, during college still. I was an intern for Fontenelle Forest, and that's kind of when I first learned about prairies, what they are, how they were managed with fire. Um, got some hands-on experience. Uh, went to the Conservation Corps of Iowa, where I was on a field crew traveling up and down the Lust Hills, um, doing a lot of direct hands-on land management, cedar cutting, prescribed burning, and that was just super fun. And that year was the year that I really started to care about prairies. Um, I remember one of the first days of working out there, we are cutting cedars off of a remnant prairie, and I had a, um, my crew leader, his name is Joe Campbell, he's a very kind person, um, he said, 
man, I really wish I could see what Iowa looked like when it was all blurry. Mm. You know, we only have these little pieces and no human alive right now on this planet. Yeah, that's true. Has an image in their head of what that would have looked like, mm-hmm. you know? No it's pictures, been, no nothing. Yeah. I mean, there's drawings of Lewis that Lewis and Clark's crew mm-hmm. did, you know, of like what yeah. this lands yeah. looked like, but they had drawings. And so um, there are definitely some photographs, like some old, old photographs, uh, black and white. You know, there's just not, nobody has seen that. And so he said that to me. And in my mind, I was like, that'd be cool you know <laughs> like yeah, right. i just didn't really care i was like yeah it'd be cool i guess to see what iowa used to look like before it looks like it does today and uh i don't know why i felt that way that's just i wasn't i didn't have that deep connection to prairie that i do now by the end of the year um i felt totally different i seriously drive down interstate 80 looking at the rolling hills and just like yearn for just a glimpse of like what iowa would have mm. looked like when it was covered with prairie you know tr- um Traditionally, Iowa was 86, 80, 86% prairie, yeah. tall grass prairie. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've lost uh, 99.9% of that. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a tenth of a percent of our remnant prairies left today in Iowa. And so I, w- I would say what got me to care about prairies is spending every day in them, um, spending more time with them. Um, you form a relationship with something through that exposure. Um, people hear a lot about the Amazon rainforest or the coral reefs and we hear you know oh that's so terrible and then we kind of forget about it because it's far away we don't have a connection to it um prairies are right here and prairies are our rainforest they're our endangered Mm -hmm. ecosystem um you know we do a lot of prairie reconstructions like you do with Hawkeye um and that is awesome that is like the next best thing um Prairie reconstructions create and fill a lot of those same ecosystem services that a prairie would, you know, cleaner water, um, food for our pollinators, wildlife habitat. Um, But there's just something about a remnant prairie where we human beings cannot recreate the uh, diversity and the complexity um, Mm -hmm. of an untilled prairie. Yeah. yeah, we've um, even we've even tried where we put like a hundred species in one area, and mm-hmm. we can't we can get maybe a third of them to grow. Yeah, and years and years, two decades later, just mm-hmm. there's still you know twenty five. Well, and, yeah. and even even if you were able to achieve that, let's say you got the if you were able to somehow find, I suppose by analyzing a remnant uh, a patch, you could you could maybe uh, get an idea of what that species count would be per square mile or whatever uh you could you know, let's say you could grow all that you still don't have the root system that you know that those prairies had for thousands of years the you soil. know that went big blue you know roots that were dropping 15 feet down into the soil you know that takes that takes so many years i think i heard somebody say once that it takes and tabitha you might know the answer to this um it takes like at least two or three hundred years to uh, achieve that root uh, growth in a, wow. in a in prairie, so even if we were able to take that that ninety nine point nine percent that used to be prairie and put it all into prairie, it would take you yeah. know such a long time to get it to what it actually once was. And CRP is a huge step in the right direction. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't mean it's it's worthless by any means. It's you much- get you get ten years in, and then it's deemed not good. Well, then you're spraying all of this 
perfectly good big blue stem Indian mm-hmm. grass, all these things that are actually probably now getting into their stride, even though they might not be getting any taller than they have for the past five years. They, uh, their roots are, are growing deeper mm-hmm. and, and, mm-hmm. uh, I, but so we don't have, we don't have the prairie that we used to have. We have a lot more corn, a lot more soybeans got, uh, you know, it's, uh, so much of Iowa's terraform. What's wrong with that? Why is there an issue there? Well, do you have any th- any thoughts on that? Yeah. So, I mean, the first thing I usually think of, which probably may or may not be the most important, would just be um, wildlife habitat. Um, we've lost so much habitat for mm. our uh, wildlife in the state. Um, sometimes you might see like posters of like the Amazon rainforest and there's like a monkey in a yeah. tree. I kind of have a dream for a poster design and it would just be like, um, you know, like what Iowa looks like today, our landscape and kind of like fading out like a ghost, like the bison, the wolves, the mm. prairie race runners, you know, we yeah. have lizards, we have, um, there are 36 some different species of native orchids in Iowa, if mm. you can believe that. So people, we just, we just don't know what it looked like. And so um it it was just extremely diverse so like wildlife habitat is probably the first one there's other super important ones where um like soil erosion and water quality are super Mm -hmm. important things to worry about when we're um utilizing this uh state for agriculture it's funny the first settlers um to iowa would write back home in new york or back east or wherever they're traveling from and they they wrote about iowa often that it was so barren it couldn't even grow a tree it was so desolate and the soils were so poor that it can't even support the life of a tree. Um, and that was just because it was tall grass prairie. Well, come to find out, you know, the tall grass prairie is what built, they were wrong. Um, the tall grass prairie is what built the most fertile soils right. in yeah. all of the Midwest. That's why it makes Iowa yeah. such an amazing state for agriculture. So um, with conventional agriculture, we worry about um, water quality and soil erosion. So, you know, we talked about earlier how old some of these prairies are they have built um you know the amazingly fertile soils that are here in iowa and that system of prairie is no longer functioning you know we have changed mm-hmm. the land use so we're not building any more soils so we need to protect the soils um that we currently have hmm. um and then like overall diversity and function i think is um a big issue what used to be cities and towns or civilization used to be an island surrounded by wild areas um now today the situation's kind of flipped uh wild areas are more islands surrounded by us and all Mm. of the things um that it takes to make our population so successful um Mm. we need a lot of things and so I yeah, uh, got a lot of comfort, you know, like. so these islands are their genetics and a lot of our remnant prairies are actually bottlenecking. Um, you know, yeah. people want to plant the same species and we talk about like local ecotype being so important and it is super important to pick something that's um, suited for the site. Uh, something, you know, is it dry? Is it mesic? Um, and local ish, you know, within 100, 200 miles. But um, a lot of our prairies biologists today um, are worried about the genes bottlenecking. You know, they need yeah. that diversity um, 
they need to be cross-pollinated with different species. That's how evolution happens. And so, mm-hmm. um, you know, they're becoming essentially inbred, the plants, and some of mm-hmm. our small remnant prairies since they're on such islands. Um, Tom Rosberg, uh, who's a professor of biology with Drake University, said that they have reason to believe that there is an immense amount of genetic flow across the state of Iowa pre-white um, civilization, I guess. And so that's another issue that we worry about. Um, finally, another, like, something that really is important to me is just kind of the intrinsic value of it. Um, mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. that we have a duty to pass down these extremely rare and important uh, ecosystems to generations after us yeah. uh, to get the same fulfillment, the same enjoyment, the same study um as we have had passed down to us so then that's that's another piece of the puzzle is just to preserve that for our future generations um glenn pollock my friend who i mentioned earlier who helped found the iowa prairie network told me just not too long ago these prairies might contain the um biology the stuff in the soil they might contain like the answers for vaccines for diseases of the future Mm. You know, people say that about the Amazon rainforest a lot. And we have the diversity in our remnant prairies that some of it is undiscovered. You know, a lot of it, mm-hmm. um, we have a lot left to learn about our remnant prairies. So yeah. that's important too. Yeah, I like how you mentioned that intrinsic value with, that's that's our that's our ID, right? That's what we were once known for. And to see what you were once known for go away that should mean something to everybody who lives there, right? That's that's our identity. Do you yeah. mean prairie? Right. Like prairie yeah. Was yeah. What the Midwest was right. known for. I also like yeah. the point too you made about uh, settlers uh, complaining about the fertility of the soil. <laughs> we were earlier we were talking about the Oregon Trail. I often thought how many people just pushed west to go try and farm unfarmable ground while going across the most fertile <laughs> ground on the planet. Mm-hmm. We're gonna go have a farm. We're gonna raise rocks. Not this tree was- yeah. <laughs> right. Goodness, yeah. they can only grow grass. <laughs> yeah. Wait, wait. Corn's a grass, right? I had this argument yeah. with my family that I thought so. I That was another thing in that 1491 book. Um uh they talked about how corn, you know, where did it come from? And uh there's been a lot of research actually done in on that. And uh the one grass they know for sure uh, that was involved with, with uh, the you know the original where where we got corn from. So in other words, corn is not a real thing. It doesn't. There, there, the corn is not a, a. It's not a native species anywhere. It's like a it, liger. It's a true. It's a liger, right? <laughs> it, and teosinte is the grass that was used to essentially breed into maize or corn mm-hmm. um but and I, I might be I, I might be uh punching out of my weight class here a little bit but um my if i remember the book correctly um they talked about how there was you know not necessarily a competition or anything but like people were working really hard okay what else was crossbred with teosinte to get to maize or were they just using you know uh, 
were they just selecting traits of that teosinte? Wow, that's a really big teosinte mm-hmm. plant over there. You know, let's let's uh, only breed these these plants that have the biggest little uh, grains on them. And uh, is that how we got to maize? But, but yeah, it is a grass species. Don't you technically? Uh, Kent, don't you have a little theory? About what was? Oh uh, yeah, I do have a little theory. It's way too hasty, and there's some serious holes in it. But uh, <laughs> I'm not ready to yet reveal my theory, Nicholas. All right, you can write your own book about it. I one have day. a trivia yes. question. It's trivia qu- question time. Okay, hit us. <laughs> also, it, be careful to speak into the mic and not next to it. You're coming oh, okay. in a little, little soft. Oh okay. Is this good? I think so. Um. So, is corn a fruit, vegetable, or grain? Do I get a guess first this time since I lost the last time? It is a grain. It's got to be a grain because it's a grass, right? I don't have the answer to it. Mine. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to go with vegetable because in elementary school they served it as a vegetable. <laughs> <laughs> it's got to be it then. It's got to be. It works on the Whole30 diet. It's got to be a vegetable, right? Corn no, I think, okay, so I've read a little bit about it, and there is a little bit of a, deba- a debate. I think farmers will call it a grain. Uh, the cafeteria at my elementary school calls it a vegetable. <laughs> what is and, the name of your elementary school? Just to give them a shout out. Um, Harrison Elementary in Omaha, Nebraska. There you go, Harrison Elementary. H-A-R-R-I-S-O-N. <laughs> a cor- um, oh, sorry. Biologists will call corn a dry fruit. Go ahead, go for it, though. What, what wow. They sound wrong. Who? Biologists. I have no education to back that. It's just the way that they say no, it sounds fine. wrong. Haven't even heard them say it. Uh, okay. According to askusda.gov, corn can be considered either a grain or a vegetable <gasps> based on when it is harvested. The maturity level of corn affects what it is considered. So I guess it mm. starts a vegetable and it turns into a grain, which okay. is why farmers around here are like, it's by golly, it's a grain. It's a grain that we make $6 a bushel off of. <laughs> Well, I read somewhere about the dry fruit thing too. So that's some someone somewhere calls it a dry yeah. fruit because a fruit is technically like you know how a tomato we call a vegetable, but it's a fruit. Right. Oh, Did you yeah. know that like bell peppers are also fruit? Um, cucumbers yeah. are fruit. Anything that's like got the seed. Yeah, it the contains the something. seed inside of it, right? See, I should. But know. strawberries don't contain the seeds. The seeds are on the outside, right? Mm, yeah, 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 that's I a good. Right, yeah, but. well, and I think berries are berries considered a a separate. I mean, we group them in with you know if you're talking fruits and vegetables and that phrase, right? Mm-hmm. Eat your fruits and vegetables. We would put berries into the fruit side of that equation, but I think berries don't they kind of almost they, they like those classify separately from fruit, right? Hmm. Like you have fruit and berries. Like, is that, is that a thing? Probably because 200 years ago, they weren't sure if they were going to die if they ate the berries. So they had all the, the berries in their own category. <laughs> They're like possible death category. Watermelon safe. <laughs> yeah. Red berry mystery. Uh. So, so is a fruit just if, if what you are holding in your hand is edible and contains the seeds to make another one, that's a fruit? Well, it doesn't have to be edible. Like, you could die from it, I suppose. It could be, <laughs> yeah, could be toxic. But So any part of any plant that has the seed encased. is the fruit. I believe so. My goodness, you've changed my I life. I don't know, for sure. I, I so, think I we're going to mislead that, a lot of I people. I probably <laughs> said that earlier, but let me just say to both of you and anyone else who's listening, please Google everything I say <laughs> after I say it. Yeah, fact check us. <laughs> yeah. 
We are not experts. We are just passionate. A I fruit? just say things. I just define fruit, and then you all figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> NYBG. Is that like New York blog or something? NYBG.org. So it's got to be credible. Scott.org. It's got to be. <laughs> a fruit is a mature, ripened ovary along with the contents of the ovary. The ovary is the ovule-bearing reproductive structure in the plant flower. Uh, that wasn't helpful for me. Was that helpful for you? That was yeah. gonna be my it, second guess. It contains the, the <laughs> yeah. It contains the part of the plant that's fertile uh, for for replicating itself, reproducing itself. Man, well, with all that the excitement in fruit, I'm going to subtly change the subject because before we run out of time today, I do want to talk about the IPN Iowa Prairie Network and um, kind of what's going on with it today and and what's it been up to. It's my Dad really loves the IPN. I don't know why. There are most organizations, they're like, hey, do you want to be part of our organization? He's like, no. <laughs> but the IPN, I remember when I first started, we'd forgotten to like send in our membership payment, and that was a big deal to him. He was like, no, we Aww. need to send that in. We, he really likes being a part of it. But uh, for you, wh- where are you guys headed? What are, what are you working towards? Well, first off, thank you for the support from you and your father. That's super awesome. For anybody who is interested in becoming a member, it's just $20 for an annual membership. Um, And so where is Iowa Prairie Network headed? Well, that's a great question. Um, I've been the president here going into my second year. Um, So I'm fairly new with the organization um, and learning as I go. But it is an amazing network of folks who care about prairie. You know, our mission is to learn about, teach about, protect, and enjoy prairies of Iowa. Mm -hmm. And um, I can proudly say that, like, our board is fulfilling every piece of that mission. You know, we have fun. We educate others. um, We advocate for prairies. So we are doing all of that mission um, all the time. Currently, our board is about 20 or so folks. Um, It's a volunteer organization. So these are different people from all across the state of Iowa with a number of different backgrounds. Some of them are super smarty pantses and they're professors of ecology. Some of them are more like me who have stumbled their way into just being, um, you know, a prairie advocate. Just we have a number of different people and that really that diversity really kind of benefits um, Mm. our board through all the different things we do. Um, We have a number of events, uh, like our annual winter meeting um, that we host every year around the Ames area usually. Um, And then we host just a number of different prairie hikes all throughout the year. Um, And these are these events are, I will say, always with a tiny little asterisk, free to the public. Occasionally, there is an event where we ask for a small donation sure. or something to cover something. If we're, you know, mm-hmm. let's say we have to put forth a cost for some reason. There, every once in a while, we have an, um, a cost associated. But, but you guys are pretty 99%. clearly a no profit. Yeah. <laughs> a negative profit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, we work with a small budget. Um, we have... Our budget just basically comes from some awesome and amazing donors and then through our membership. Um, and so if you become a member, you'll get our uh, quarterly newsletter, which we put out, um, you know, four times a year. And you can get mm, it via quarterly. email or, yeah, <laughs> you can get it um, emailed, sent to your house. It'll list all the events that we have going on. We have like a dozen or more events on our calendar mm. per month. And uh, we've had a IPN I believe they called a prairie walk mm-hmm. or a prairie appreciation or something like that. We've had that on our farm and we tried to get one scheduled this year, but 
was just too little too late so we are having one next year but they are really cool they're yeah. really good events because mm-hmm. when people are volunteering to put on events mm-hmm. they care about it and when yeah. they care about it they do a great job yeah so mm-hmm. and we host these prairie hikes um, just with the objective to get folks out into a prairie and experiencing it. Because like I said before, um, when I first started some of this work, it's like, oh, it's a prairie, whatever. But you to really get the idea of what a prairie is, you have to be there in person. Mm. You have to yeah. get close, you know? I mean, you mentioned earlier before we started uh, the podcast that you really love the mountains. And those are something that you can drive by from a far distance. Like if you're heading out west and you're on 80 going into Denver, you see those mountains peak up mm-hmm. like when you're, yeah. I don't know, 100 miles away, not quite that far. But, you know, from a far distance away, you start seeing yeah. those mountains peak up over the clouds. And mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> you just get that depth of beauty from far away we're like a prairie if you go and sit there's going to be a lot of little things around you um that you can really find a connection to um so it's just a smaller scale it's an you know it's beauty at a smaller scale yeah that's really cool you know to to confirm to confirm what tabitha was just saying uh just this last weekend my parents were visiting and um uh you know they obviously know about me working at hoxie now and and i tell them you know what what a day entails on occasion you know i'll I'll call them on the phone or something and have a conversation but uh they were in town and um worked out for me to show them around our fields at hoxie and i got down to our uh switchgrass field nick and um you know where we have like the stiff goldenrod field Mm -hmm. and then it's all just you know almost literally as far as your eye can see in that field because of the way the landscape is kind of a bowl there so you can't see too far on the horizon but it's all just switchgrass everywhere you know which gives you a good idea as to you know the height of what a prairie would have been you know around there switchgrass is one of the taller species in a prairie and um the wind was blowing nice and it was there was a storm moving in which in my opinion prairie is the prettiest when there's a storm coming oh yeah in. when there's it, clouds and the sun is trying to peek through but it can't right. man prairie starts looking the, real good yeah everything just starts to pop and the wind going making the grass just kind of look like that the waves on the ocean kind of you know and my dad said man you can almost get an idea of what prairie looked like when you look at this and then, you know, 15 minutes later, we were looking at another part of the f- field. We'd gone past the sweet black-eyed Susan, which is just prime right now. And my dad goes, man, this I could have never pictured this. This is so different than what I had in my mind. I don't know what I had in my mind, but it wasn't this. Yeah. And, and um, that totally confirms what Tabitha was just saying. You know, to, to be there and experience it, man, it's just so, it's something that really stirs you. And I think creates what Nick was talking about at the beginning of the show, where getting people connected to the land, getting them to live close to the land is is such a huge part of what all of us do. I I wonder what, for lack of a better term, what normies think prairie looked like. Oh, I know. You know what I mean? Like if you went to like D.C., or some city in Florida or something, and you were just randomly interviewing people in the city, be like, hey, what do you think Prairie looks like? I wonder what their thoughts are. The Microsoft, yeah. the old uh, Microsoft screensaver. 
you remember where it was like the green grass and then like a blue sky with like one perfect cloud? Oh, yeah. I think oh. I know like what you're talking about, yeah. Grass, the old Microsoft screensaver. Yep, yep. That's what people think. You know, they oh. think of a golf course maybe or just grass. Yeah. Or maybe they think of the show Little House on the Prairie. And yeah. They think of yeah. like some prairie. Laura Ingle Wilder. The Oregon Trail like computer game. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so, I mean, you have shot you too have many to buffalo to haul there. back. That's why you have to get out there in it is because you realize that it's not a monoculture by any means. No. You, mm-hmm. you go up a hill and then you walk slightly down in elevation and you're going to get a lot of different plants, a lot of different species. Yeah. I mean, the grasses have different textures, yeah, different colors, true. different heights, different growth patterns. Some spread out, some are tall. I mean, it's really a mini rainforest. When yeah, you uh, yeah. I, I, that, I was just thinking that because when you're going over a rainforest, you just see the trees. Mm-hmm. Well, you get into it and you see whatever yeah. hundreds mm-hmm. of species that are right there. Well, with prairie, if you look at it from a distance, you just see big blue stem and Indian and switchgrass. You just see the tall and then you get into it and there are hundreds. I mean, there are some species that only show up if buffalo lay down on the prairie and then get up. Like yeah, that's wallow, what, yeah. Yeah, yep. exactly. So there's... It's wild the nuances of of what it is, and then right there's never it, a square foot of soil that is the only square foot of soil that will ever be like that that has had that rain pit. Pardon me, that rain pattern for the past hundred years. You know what I mean? It, it will never be like that again. And then what prairie comes out of that square foot? Because you might, yeah. with, with with standard government issued contracts, we plant forty seeds a square foot. Well. And that feels like a lot. You're like a square foot, forty species. No, they they could pack a lot of stuff in mm-hmm. a square foot. Those prairies could, mm-hmm. uh, and yeah, I, they're they're in, they're in a, unimaginably as we've just proven. They're unimaginably impressive when you get up close and you're seeing the the nuances. And mm-hmm. when they're done right, just incredible amounts of color yeah. everywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I oftentimes wish and have kind of thought about getting into photography because there are a lot of amazing nature photographers that can help kind of share the prairie yeah. story. One person um, I want to give a plug for is Chris Helzer. I love Chris Helzer. Yes. He is amazing. He is so amazing. Do you know him personally? Um, I've met him like in a oh, passing at events. You? He probably wouldn't know who I, I well, messaged him the other day. Because I was like, hey, you should come on our podcast. He's like, yeah, email me. His photos are so are good. Not amazing. Yeah. And he he's so funny. He tells it in a relatable manner. And that's what you have to do. I mean, like, mm-hmm. if you're going to give all these statistics and science and get really high up with this stuff, you got to meet people where they are. You know, like I grew up in Omaha, Nebraska, um, not knowing anything about prairie. I had to start from the basics. You know, you have to mm-hmm. really um be relatable and tell conservation in an impactful way that folks can latch on to um and he does an amazing job at that his photographs are beautiful he has a couple books um the one i'm thinking of is maybe his most popular he he took a photo every day for a year of the same square meter of prairie and just that square meter so it's like a whole book of just that small area and you can see like all the wildlife that use it all the number of different insects all the different flowers he had bloom um it's an awesome book i would highly recommend purchasing it i have it and it's just super fun to read what's it called um, gosh, I can't remember right off the okay. top of my head. But um, Chris Helzer if, is his name. Yeah, if you look up Chris Helzer, H-E-L-Z-E-R, and book 
prairie yeah. in a square meter, you'll find it. I think it. he, on social media, he goes by the prairie ecologist. Yep. Maybe Nick could put uh, the name of that. I'm giving Nick homework. <laughs> Nick could put the name of that book in the show notes on yeah. uh, this episode, maybe. Yeah, his yeah, blog is great, too, which is the Prairie Ecologist blog. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, follow that blog. You'll learn something every time you read it, and you'll yeah. have a chuckle, too, because he's funny. And, yep. and people ask us questions a lot, and it's not very – you know, most questions are fairly similar. How often do you burn? Like, how, what do, you, how do you manage weeds to begin with? What, what if it's not getting tall enough? You know, stuff like that. But people ask him really nuanced questions and he knows Mm -hmm. they'll be like hey what if i'm seeing uh, a lot of these insects in an area you know and he'll answer question you know that kind of thing well it's probably because your moisture lover is this this and this and Mm -hmm. you're not getting Mm -hmm. good drainage and yeah just wild yeah yeah he is a big thinker and super knowledgeable and i know he would say he often says in his blog like i'm no expert i reached out to some experts and it's like he is definitely an expert (laughs) one thing that fascinated me that he wrote about not too long ago was that um everybody talks about how deep-rooted prairie plants are and we think it's to get moisture and he i don't think it was him that did a study but he wrote about this study maybe he participated in it google it and read the real version (laughs) um but basically the conclusion is that um our prairie grasses and prairie plants are not getting the majority of their moisture from those deep roots it's the shallow lateral Mm. roots Mm. where they're actually taking most of the moisture into the plant and so it's kind of a mystery why they're so deep Mm. it really is yeah i mean it makes sense you know most unless you were going to tap the water table (laughs) which would be very deep uh you know, most rainwater is not going to penetrate in great quantity enough mm-hmm. to, you know, meet the immediate needs of a plant, you mm-hmm. know, much further than a couple inches down. I find that all the time when I'm uh, digging weeds, you know, you can see like where is getting, wh- what's soaking up rainwater and it doesn't take too deep of a shovel full of dirt to kind of figure out where that line is. So, yeah, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I wonder if it has to do with like just some natural selection of like uh prairie dogs and and gophers or moles and stuff like that where yeah. if they were only a few feet in the ground the big blue stem well those weren't going to make it as often because their roots get dug up yeah. I, you know i have no idea but that is it's fascinating kind of preserve some living tissue way deep down there for a longer lifespan yes. and, yep. and essentially that's what happened on our prairie at hoxie yeah. you know uh when if you go back to episode one and hear the hoxie story and and uh the big blue that popped up when the cedar trees got burned up and that had been there for decades not even decades centuries yeah and the the big blue stem was dormant they couldn't compare with they couldn't compete with the yeah they got shaded out but they like but they just stayed alive under the ground in the root system the cedars burned up and the next year he had perfect he had a dad had a perfect remnant he had several species that we still have our you know 80 acre fields today are from that's those, awesome. Uh, mm-hmm. Those remnants, yeah. That's so cool. It's really amazing how. Um, so I'm from the Lus Hills region of Iowa. Um, we have Lus soils, and it creates some steep hill faces, and not a lot likes to grow on some of our southwest facing slopes, except prairie and cedars and mm. other kind of yeah. crap that's invasive. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, it, people sometimes I work, I work with private rows. landowners, and people sometimes don't 
believe me when I say, if you cut all these cedars off, you will have prairie. What, what do I seed? Nothing, you know, maybe try to give it a burn, but you will have remnant prairie come up because those cedars just hmm. hold the prairie super well. Once, wow. If When you get deciduous encroachment into a prairie for whatever reason, it gets a lot tougher to turn that back into prairie. <clears throat> um, I'm sorry, a what? A deciduous, like, so like oak you know. And, oak and ash and elm. Oh, and yeah, yeah. Okay. and usually it's not oak and ash and elm that we're dealing with, the nice, cool ones. Usually we're dealing with, um, I mean, in the floodplain, we deal with a lot of cottonwoods, which are a native tree. We, mm-hmm. God love them. They're a great tree, but they can just really reproduce rapidly. Oh, yeah. Um, I've seen cottonwoods grow up in cornfields that haven't been sprayed and be as tall as the corn. So they are growing as fast as corn. <laughs> um, wow. So, you know, we see tree of heaven. We see... Cyber, Imagine you know. walnut can be a problem, too, cause then, or black walnut, I believe it is, that kind of sends out like a almost a... Rhizomus no a uh, almost like an herbicide yeah. that oh. off of its root system that mm-hmm. you know knocks out the competition yeah yeah well i don't see in my neck of the woods walnuts become being too big of a problem sometimes they can be i think they get heavy pressure by deer in our area hmm. um oh, yeah. so we don't have huge walnut region but um, what about locust i see a lot of locusts out in the los hills yeah black locust honey locust um the honey locust is a native black locust i don't believe is um they cause problems for Mm -hmm. us too sometimes the black locust for sure they are Um, a pain well and those are i think that's technically a rhizomal spread for them too right Mm -hmm. where they're shooting up trees off their same kind of like the what are they the alders or that or aspen trees maybe Mm -hmm. uh out west where it's like Technically, it's one organism, mm-hmm. but you're looking at a whole mountainside of trees, yeah. and it's one organism. Yeah. It's all off the same <laughs> root tree system. Tree of Heaven yeah. do that in the Lost Hills really bad, too. And just the oh. past few years, Tree of Heaven has become terrible in a lot of different areas. So, But, yeah, anyways, people don't believe me that when I say, like, cedars, it's kind of painful. And while it makes me cringe to look at a whole hillside full of cedars, they're a native tree, and I see them as an opportunity that is mm-hmm. holding down our prairie until we can get them off of there and mm. um, you know yeah. that prairie can come back through. And so a lot of people ask me, well, why are the cedars taking over? And it's because in the Midwest, we have removed big grazers mm-hmm. like the bison. They were a force of nature in their own way. Chris Helzer wrote a blog about how they would, the, the, the bison didn't move to greener pastures. The bison created the greenery through mm-hmm. grazing, you know, mm-hmm. as they would migrate, yeah. they munch and create a flush of fresh green growth. You know, grasses get munched on and they have a response like, Oh, something's munching me. So they grow yeah. faster. Right, yeah. Um, and so, you know, through taking away big grazers and, uh, suppressing fire mm-hmm. in the Midwest, it's, it's something we're scared of. We don't, yeah. humanity doesn't live well with fire. Um, and that's something we need to overcome is learning that fire is a good thing. Yeah. Uh, it right. removes diseases. It pushes back woody encroachment. Mm. It gets rid of a future fire hazard. The longer you suppress, fire the more fuel you're building up yeah so i mean there's just a number of reasons but yeah i lived in uh redding california northern california when they had those huge fires when Mm -hmm. we were considered like uh um extreme a natural disaster zone or whatever disaster Um, and they were i mean the brush was horrible you know Mm -hmm. and so you could have just uh one little um spark fly a mile and just blaze up a forest overnight Mm -hmm. Um, and that's just because there wasn't any. And I think California is trying to start 
the idea of these natural fires. But mm -hmm. I mean, it's one thing on some prairie. It's another thing on like on oh, trees huge. that are several yeah. tons, you know, weigh several tons and are a hundred feet in the yeah. air. Mm -hmm. And you know, yeah. like how do you control something like yeah. that? So th those are very heavy fuels and they have a very different environment out there where mm -hmm. trees like that could burn. People here oftentimes sometimes they have um, a prairie that they want to burn and it's next to timber and they're like well i can't let it get into the timber i can't let it get into the timber because they think it's going to take off like some giant california wildfire where here our woodlands actually provide really nice burn breaks most mm -hmm. of the time you know as i'm sure you know the oak leaf litter burns really well mm -hmm. but if you have scrubby trees crappier trees just the shade and the moisture mm -hmm. um there's not fuel at the ground level yeah. grass is such a quick fuel it lights yeah. so quickly and it just takes off the trees especially standing trees are going to be so hard to catch because they're just such a heavy fuel i mean think about if you're standing at a campfire and you have a log and you just put a lighter to a <laughs> yeah log. right yeah you know what i mean That's yeah. a good point. If you don't like you never just put a lighter to the log and stand there with a lighter on the log <laughs> yeah, you know you, you need work. paper you need something light mm -hmm. that will catch and right. that's our grasses and so when we do our burns we're mostly doing grass and fire is beneficial for timber as well yeah. you have to do yeah. that oftentimes in iowa you have to do that on some of the hottest driest sunniest days to get anything to burn in the timber yeah. so um i think people get nervous about yeah. fire because they think of those california wildfires when we luckily are just not in that same situation oh, yeah. here yeah. i mean even with with timber um the the insects that you would keep at bay with smoking them out because yeah you're going to burn the outside of the wood and like 10%, 15% of your trees are going to die. But a lot of those hardy trees, they're not going to die. I mean, oh, even no. in California, you were getting flames 100 feet in the air, and the trees were chilling in a yeah. year or two. They... And it all just depends on the species of tree. I mean, like cedar, pine, those are pretty fire susceptible, especially when they're smaller. Mm -hmm. um, oaks are super fire tolerant. Their leaves are actually made of chemicals that is flammable. Oaks want fire. Their mm -hmm. leaves are lobed and curled and... Uh, it curled in that way to allow airflow through them. Like they really want things to burn around mm. them. Um, mm. I never to heard that. Propagate That's cool. their yeah, their young oaks. And so the the worst thing for a big old oak tree, if you're trying to drop acorns and make more small oak trees, would be to put shade around it. You know, mm -hmm. oaks are used to. I was going to say that. I think that's. I mean, again, <laughs> fact check me on this, but. I've always thought, you know, when you, you consider prairie as a endless sea of grass, certainly the, the things that Tabitha are probably the, the top few reasons. But I think another one that would maybe even come under that is just um, the shade from all those tall grass species, mm -hmm. you know, shading out those little tree seedlings from ever getting enough. You know, it's just like if you go into a unmanaged stand of timber, yeah. you know, there's in the so it's interesting we're recording in the same place we recorded with ryan bryson who does land management a land manager who's managing for more wildlife on a property managing a timber you got to cut openings in that timber so sunlight can get down to the forest yeah. floor so that small trees can grow up and small trees serve as that ground level cover for fawns and turkeys and mm -hmm. and uh quail if it's around the edge of the timber or whatever but but um if you have all that tall grass, then it's harder, not impossible. You still see trees that, especially mulberry trees, that'll grow up in the, you know, in a stand of grass. But if you had all that, the years and years of, of both, you know, new growth and old growth off of these tall, you know, big blue and switch and Indian and, 
and uh, so on. If you have that, that's going to also shade the ground a little bit too. And so, I don't know. I've always thought that that might have been a, a player too, but maybe yeah. not. Yeah, it just definitely depends on the site, I would say, because certain sites we have no problems with trees growing in our grassy areas. I think a lot of trees thrive on disturbance. Cottonwood is mm -hmm. one of those species. You see them all along the rivers, and periodic flooding and the disturbance of the soils yeah. and the banks of rivers allow for cottonwood trees to grow. So, yep. you know, it just kind of depends on the stand. If it's an old established grass stand, that's every niche is filled. You know, if it's diverse enough that yeah. you have every little um niche of that stand filled you're not going to get a lot of trees growing yeah, up in it yeah good um, way to say it yeah yeah but i so most of our listeners don't have timbers they don't have land um and uh when we went into the prairie farm a big part of us we just wanted to educate and uh, help cultivate change mm -hmm. right and since most of our listeners don't have land we we started pressing things uh or pushing things like um backyard prairies mm -hmm. or uh you know little guard uh pollinator gardens things like that um in terms of those what do you recommend for people let's say you live in in the city and you've got mm -hmm. like a fifth of an acre mm -hmm. what because you can't have like a prairie there you can have some prairie there but you can't have like a full-blown yeah. prairie what would you recommend what do you Anything, I don't even know if it's something you've put thought into, but. Totally. Um, so, I mean, there are tons of ways to make a difference. And it's funny, I was actually just talking to a friend on the drive here. And I said to him, sometimes I worry I'm not making a difference. Am I making a difference? And he mm. said, yes, you're making a difference. Everyone is making a difference. Everything you do, even a menial conversation with somebody as you pass by on the street is making a difference. Everything we're doing is making a difference. So you just have to evaluate your actions and decide is it the difference that I want to see in the world and so um, there are so many ways that somebody can make a difference whether you live in an apartment whether you um, you know have a lot of land if you have a lot of land obviously um, meeting with a private lands biologist or someone similar uh, to kind of give you advice or help you along the way if you don't know where to start would be a great place to start um, you can get involved with a number of organizations that are out there um, it just depends on what you do. I mean, like if you're passionate about pollinators, there are different groups of people that you could meet with. Um, become a member of the Iowa Prairie Network, become a member of the Iowa Native Plant mm -hmm. Society, become a member of Pheasants Forever, become a member of any of the nonprofit conservation organizations that are mm -hmm. um, acting locally around you. I really love the local grassroots stuff. There are bigger organizations um, out there too that you can be a part of um, and contribute to, whether that's financially whether that is you know buying a hunting or fishing license is a great way to give back um mm. yeah. you know those dollars go directly to the department of natural resources even if you're not going to go fish buy a fishing license uh you can buy the um wildlife plates for your car when you go yeah. to register your mm. car um you know i did it's, not know that that money went there it's yeah. like 40 bucks you know and that's just a opportunity to um make a donation that way you know so you can donate mm. financially you can donate um your time there are oh my gosh if only i had a million of me to run around and cut all the cedars off the remnant prairies or organize field days you know there's so much if you like to be outside doing stuff there's just endless opportunities for that you know um our organizations and conservation are stretched thin 
if we mm-hmm. we could double in size and everybody could be busy all day long. Oh yeah. You know, um, there's just so much to do. Um, and while we work at it, you know, you burn something this year, it's gonna need burned again in four years. You know, you cut all the cedar trees here, like they grow back. Like that's just, it's an ever changing environment. And so yeah. um, there's a job for everyone. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. I'm part of a Facebook group called Gardening with Native Plants, I think. I'm part of a bunch of Facebook groups that have to do with prairie, but <clears throat> Gardening with Native Plants, and there's like 80,000 people that cool. are part of this. And the, yeah, it is That's super cool. Awesome. And I see all these posts of, of very specific questions that I n- never in 100 years would know the answer to. Yeah. But ton- hundreds of comments will flood in with the answer. And these, I mean, they might be, but I guarantee you not all of them have PhDs. They didn't all go to school. Um, for uh, some sort of um, They're not all Laura resource. Walters, what you're saying. Yes, exactly. They're not all Laura Walters, but they have answers as if they are, and it, it means that they have just spent the time outside. And mm-hmm. I think a big part of what we're trying to do is we're just trying to tell people, hey, it matters. What's happening outside, on your ground, in the air, in the creatures around you, like, that matters. And, yeah. and when it matters to someone, they care about it. When they, they care about it, they will spend their time or resources affecting it. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of where we're at. And, and we want to wrap up here quickly, but before we do that, you've been amazing. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. If, if someone wanted to reach out to the amazing Tabitha Panis, how would they reach you? Are you on Instagram or would they email you through Prairie Network? What would be the best way? Yeah, you could email Network at gmail.com. Um, I'm sure there is a contact us page on our website, which is iowaprairienetwork.org. Um, you can message us on Facebook. We also have an Instagram. Um, the fa- I check the Facebook messages, and so I will just go ahead and say now that's probably going to be the quickest way to get a hold of me because I'll get a notification on my phone if you message <laughs> the Iowa Prairie Network on Facebook. Um, and I love getting questions from people. I absolutely love when someone's interested and wants to take the time to just have a conversation with me. Um, I'm super passionate about this, and I wish I could talk to everyone in the world all day long about this sort yeah. of stuff. So um, if anybody has any specific questions about, you know, how do I make a difference? What can I do? How do I do this prairie reconstruction? How do I take my yard? You know, we have people on our board who um, do a lot of native landscaping stuff. You know, it's not super difficult. It's actually oftentimes a lot easier than traditional, you know, gardening where you go and buy your annuals every year from Lowe's and then you got to go buy your annuals next year from Lowe's. You know, you plant most of our, a lot of our prairie plants are perennials. Mm -hmm. And so that's the awesome benefit of them is you put them in the ground and they will live for a very yeah. long time. Normal amount of garden work for two years and then very little garden yeah. work for mm. many, many years. Yeah. And I'm not exactly sure how long, like, you know, grass, native grasses or wildflowers will live, but I do know one species, the pasque flower, which everybody gets super excited about. It's a really pretty flower that's like one of the first to bloom in the spring, really early spring. Like sometimes there's still snow on the ground and the pasque flowers are blooming. Wow. Um, that like that individual, I just looked it up because I was doing a pasque flower hike, and I'm like, let's find some fun facts about pasque flowers. A single individual can live over 50 years. So I mean, and that's just kind of cool. typical for our native plants. Mm-hmm. You know, they're yeah. just super long lived, and I think that's pretty amazing to look down at a flower that, um, you know, probably older than me. I'm 28 years old, and this thing has probably been on this sunny, tall, high up hill slope in the Lust Hills, just doing its thing yeah. um, for you know. 
since the day my dad was born. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so, oh, well said. That is super cool. Well said. We, um, ooh, yes, we highly recommend that you go and follow Tabitha and the Iowa Prairie Network and connect with them or connect with a local local organization of some sort because it matters. Uh, conservation in our beautiful Midwest matters, and uh, we believe that as well. And if you are looking for something for your yard, we do have mixes on theprairiefarm.com, mostly for Iowa and surrounding states are what they're going to be for, even into Indiana and in Ohio. If you start getting further away than that, then they might not make as much sense for you. Um, But if you are looking for something, you can go on there. There's also a lot of blogs that answer FAQ if you are looking into those things. But... uh, yeah, we want to be here, be a resource for you if you are needing anything. Is there anything else, Kent? Am I missing something? No, head over to theprairiefarm.com. Like Nicholas said, make sure you're also following Hoxie Native Seeds on Instagram and Facebook. Nicholas puts all sorts of good stuff up there. Usually it's pictures Kent took while he's working during the day. <laughs> yeah, that's on my uh, phone that Nick doesn't like. I still need to get switched over. i got to go to Verizon, Nick. I Look, guys, I gave this man a new phone. However, it is U.S. Cellular. We live far from a Verizon uh, s- store that yeah. uh, will work out to get it switched over to Verizon mode. Just use it for your camera, man. That's I all I, I ask. I guess I could do that. I just need that. some non-blurry pictures. The people want it. They're crying out for it. Listen to them chant. Yeah, I, you know, that is a good point. I probably could do that. I could just use the, the camera mode on it, but... No, uh, thanks so much to Tabitha for for coming out and uh, saving us a few hours off of our drive and uh, just sharing her wealth of of knowledge. And, uh, I mean, we could try and describe to you that that she's the real deal, that she's very passionate about what she's doing, but you're going to hear it in her voice as you listen to this this episode for sure. And um, It was interesting because before you got here, Tabitha, I'm going to out us a little bit. I was like... Yeah, I don't know if Tabitha is going to be like one of those crazy experts like we've talked about. Because we've talked to people who have been doing prayer for like 50 years. Uh, and you've just proven yourself to be that. Oh, you my know? gosh. I mean, well, it, it, yeah. even if you are not fully experienced, you are very educated. Smoke, and it is really smoked cool. me on Nick's uh, Come quiz. on. Three yeah. for three. You know, That's I mean, a... come on. That was a basic. <laughs> no, yeah. I'm just kidding. Making it worse for me. It was totally it. a guess. I got super lucky. Um, but no, I would just like to say thank you to everyone who has taught me everything I know because n- nothing I know came from direct observations of myself. And I think that's really important for people to realize is like you don't need to do all the studies yourself to be an expert. Uh, I have never done any studies on the sun rotating the earth, yet we know that that happens. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's so, true, like, yeah. literally everything that. Um, I am known and I'm able to share with people have come from people who are way smarter than me. And I'm super grateful for all my teachers. A lot of those teachers are within the Iowa Prairie Network. Um, and so become a member, become, uh, reach out to us and you can attend our quarterly board meetings. Those are free and open to the public. If you just have ideas, you can attend our board meetings, three out of four of them a year are on zoom. So, yeah, there um, you go. You know, share what your concerns are with us and you can learn, um, right along with us. Man. Yeah. And as Nick was saying earlier, you know, if you don't own a big farm where you can put down a whole bunch of prairie grass or something like that, don't sweat it. Because remember, conservation happens one yard at a time. <laughs>